I don't remember very much from primary school. It's all a little bit of a blur for me. But I do remember certain things. And one of my most distinct memories is of one day, I turn up at school as usual, and I see one of my friends. And I say hi to him, and I call out his name. And he doesn't acknowledge me. I call out his name again and again. And still he ignores me. Until finally, I say to him, Oi! And I poke him. And he turns around and with dramatic flair, he had been waiting to reveal this the whole time, he says to me, That's no longer my name. I was puzzled. How could somebody just not have a name anymore? And he explained to me that he actually changed his name. He changed his name because a fortune teller had told him and his family that his current name put him on a certain path in life, that it held a certain destiny for him. And so, by changing his name, he would therefore change his ultimate fate. That was my probably my first encounter with the practice of renaming. And it suddenly occurred to me that my parents had talked about Port Wellesley when it was really clang now. That sometimes my older teachers would refer to Siam instead of Thailand. Because in their lifetime, all these names of everything from cities to roads to countries had all changed. And it made me wonder... Why do we name things a certain way? What do they mean? Where do they come from? And what are we trying to do? Are we trying to change our fate? And who decides what gets named what? Join me today as I explore the practice of renaming, its politics, its consequences, the people involved, and the stories behind them. And along the way, Let's discover how across Southeast Asia and beyond, we're all same-same, but different. And welcome to Same Same But Different, the podcast on all things Southeast Asia. My name is Kajin and I'm your host. And this is our pilot episode. Our goal really at Same Same But Different is to explore some of the underside of issues in Southeast Asia. So we explore everything from its culture to its politics to its places. And you know, as fate would have it, today we are talking about the politics of places. As in, why are things named a certain way? Who's the mastermind behind these names? And let me tell you, this is an issue that I've been thinking about for a long, long time. I remember my parents telling me about how they chose my name, and it was the most awfully complicated process I had ever heard of. Apparently, they had to go to a fortune teller. The fortune teller then calculated the number of strokes that it took 
to write down my name in Chinese. They thought about how it sounded and what elements it corresponded to, like earth, fire, air, water, all that jazz. And then not only that, the number of strokes had to add up to some, you know, fortuitous number that didn't end in a four or anything, you know, unfortunate sounding like that. And basically, it was a really complicated process to say the least. But it was particularly complicated because my parents and my society place so much importance on choosing the right name. So I started thinking a little bit more about names. Names like city names, street names, country names. You know, and I started looking it up and the more I looked, the more complicated it became. Malaya, Borneo, Sabah, Sarawak, Kuala Lumpur, Jesselton, Prince of Wales Island, Burma, Myanmar, Siam, Thailand, Kampuchea, Cambodia. Oh, it was like an alphabet soup out there. <laughs> so many names, so many changes throughout the region, not just in my home country of Malaysia, but everywhere in Southeast Asia, there have been very, there have been so many name changes that we know so little about. And it occurred to me, similar to how we have so many hopes and aspirations, ideas inside our own personal names that our families pick for us, there are similarly very important political implications, cultural implications, aspirations that are set and contained inside these name choices. And maybe when a name is changed, it's a case of a contest, a contest, and when that name change happens, it means someone has won. And with every war, with every battle, when there's winners and losers, there's going to be an aftermath. One of those battles that's been raging on, at least since 1989, is that of Burma versus Myanmar. Which one do you use? And it has big political implications. I know there's one artist called Mien San Mient. He has a series of paintings, Burmese Lady, Burmese Gentleman, where he very explicitly uses Burma rather than Myanmar. And there are some, some of his paintings that have scribbled in them democracy and some commitments. to. So this seems to be part of his vision, kind of what the country should look like, is that it should be democratic and it should be true to its Burmese heritage rather than this new Myanmar gloss that's been put on it. That was the Vice-Chancellor of Hong Kong University, Burma Specialist, and an avid collector of Burmese contemporary art, Professor Ian Holliday speaking just now. So, traditionally, those who have been aligned and supportive of the democratic movement, and Aung San Suu Kyi herself as well, have been very adamant on using the word Burma to refer to the country, not Myanmar. Myanmar, on the other hand, only really became the official name of the country in 1989, a year in which the military junta actually cracked down on dissidents, shot protesters in the streets, and that's the year when they changed the name of Burma to Myanmar. So Myanmar is a name that's affiliated with the military junta and their sort of authoritarian regime. But of course the problem is, it's really not that simple. Take, for example, in 2012. So 
So in 2012, President Barack Obama visited Myanmar amid democratic reforms taken by the military junta. And what he did then that caused ripples and waves in diplomatic circles was that for the first time, a United States official, the president in fact, called the country Myanmar instead of Burma. All along, the State Department had, has been very, very consistent and very careful about referring to the country as Burma. And it's a sign that they don't approve of the military junta and they want to support the democracy. Yeah, so when that happened, a lot of people were quick to see that as an action of the United States in abandoning its ally, abandoning Aung San Suu Kyi and ideals of democracy for a more pragmatic movement, or that it was giving concessions to the military junta in exchange for democratic reforms. But what do the people of that country, Burma slash Myanmar, think of the term itself? What do they feel? What's the situation on the ground like? Professor Ian Holiday elaborates again. When you look around the country, Myanmar is, and, and, and all of its associations, are very, very widely used. Like Aowadi rather than Irrawaddy just comes very naturally to Myanmar people, Yangon rather than Rangoon. And looking at something like the title of a Burmese painting, usually when I buy a painting, it has no title. And I say, well, I need a title for this because I'm going to be putting it on my website and I'm also going to be exhibiting it one day. What do you think? And often between us, we kind of negotiate a title. <laughs> but they would, never think of, they would never think of actually using the word Irrawaddy, even though they know that this is going to be for an English language audience. If it was a you know, painting of the Irrawaddy River, they would never think of using that. They would always use the new term mm. rather than that. Same for Yangon, as I said. So Even the older generation? Yeah, even the older generation. So the common people the people on the street, the people who live and breathe and work in Myanmar itself. They choose the word Myanmar, although some, like that previously mentioned Burmese artist, is quite adamant on it. But even then, some democracy activists are fine with the word Myanmar. I was at a conference a few years ago with a, another famous political daughter, so Unu, after Aung San was assassinated in '47. The Prime Minister for most of democratic Burma from 48 to 62 was Unu. His, his daughter is also, so she's another political daughter like Suu Kyi, though she's of course not as successful politically. But she was at a conference and someone asked this very question, Burma or Myanmar? And she said, Myanmar. And she said, you know, in, in the late 1980s, when the name change was announced in 89, we rejected it because we rejected absolutely everything that came out of that junta. We simply hated them. They crushed the popular movement just a year earlier. We couldn't see anything right. If they said black, we said white, and vice versa. But now, looking at it, Myanmar is the right term. Mm. It, it, it fits better with our language. It's more inclusive of our people. You're knowing that Burma is a corruption of Burma, and that's the dominant ethnic group, whereas Myanmar doesn't have that connotation of being linked to one of the ethnic groups inside the country. She, she made this argument, and I think many other people inside the country would say the same thing. Yeah, Myanmar. Yeah, we, we understand that we didn't like it, but actually it was the right thing. Professor Ian Holiday thinks that even Aung San Suu Kyi herself, one of the most prominent proponents of using the word Burma over the word Myanmar, may budge on the issue herself, may accept the change at the end of the day. 
But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Suchi does with Myanmar because <clears throat> she's absolutely rigid in, in using Burma and everything associated with it and never using Myanmar and anything associated with that. Um, but her reason for that is the, the name changes, the full set has never been endorsed by a democratically elected parliament. Well, mm. now we have one of those, it, right, it has military appointees, but it does have a democratic majority. The 75% have been elected, the 25% appointed. So she could choose actually to go with these name changes and put a bill through parliament that endorses them. And then by her own standard, the, own re the requirement that she herself has set for this, it would meet the test. Mm. And it'll be interesting to see whether she does that, whether that's going to be part of the compact. So really, at the heart of the matter is not really the appropriateness of the name Burma versus Myanmar. Myanmar in many ways is arguably a much more suitable, much more inclusive name that properly reflects the ethnic compositions and aspirations of the, of the people of Myanmar. Why they're still going over this is really a contest. It's a contest of power. It's a contest of legitimacy. The power to name something is also the power to determine who is right and who is wrong. And by fighting the name Myanmar, democracy activists are fighting the legitimacy of a military government. At the heart of this contest for legitimacy is identity. How do we choose to define ourselves? Our names are representative of the values of our history, of our culture. And so to reject a name that's been chosen by a certain group of people is also to reject the kind of identity that that group of people have placed on you is to say, no, I am not what you think I am. I want to choose my own path. I am not what you say I am. And I reject that vision you have for my identity. These rejections don't only happen on a personal level, but on a national scale as well. Very often, Governments have rejected old names and replaced them with new names. Rue Katina was the French colonial name of the street in Saigon, and then it became Tudo Street, Independence Street. And so street names are very important. And in the case of Phnom Penh in 1979, when the Pol Pot regime was overthrown, the new communist government named streets differently and they went back to their own anti-colonial past and named streets after Buddhist monks who'd become communists and had fought for independence against the French, including one who had died in a French jail. And so his name was given to what had been Avenue General de Gaulle, the French president's name, had been on that street in the 1950s and 60s. And so that was sort of a very political renaming of streets. That just now was Professor Ben Kiernan, Professor of History at Yale University. In the two examples that he mentioned of streets being renamed after the colonial powers had left, it was very much an example of a country forming a new identity by rejecting a colonial past and bringing to fore its own heritage, its own proud nationalist credentials. It's a way of saying that we are independent, that we are proud, that we are our own country, that we are no longer dependent 
or inferior to the Western imperialist powers. Sometimes though, pushing one narrative and prioritizing it can erase the contribution of other narratives. It can, in the process, make one group more important than all the others. There's a whole series of names of countries in Southeast Asia which first appeared in the 20th century. Vietnam is one of them, although it had been briefly used in the early 19th century. The name of the country from 1838 was Dainam, or the Great South, and it wasn't until the 20th century, in particular in 1945, that the name was changed to the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Mm. And that was a more of a focus on the ethnic Vietnamese, or the Viet, uh, majority, right. rather than a, a non-ethnic name like the Great South. It was mm. more to do with geography and imperial pretension than to do with nationalism and ethnic representation. And of course, another example of that is um, Siam, which was the name of the kingdom of Thailand, but it, it's only been known as Thailand since 1939. And again, it's an attempt by a sort of modern 20th century regime to associate the kingdom with its ethnic majority, the mm. Thai, whereas Siam didn't have that meaning at all. Right. And it makes me wonder, when you pick a name like that, what does that mean? What kind of message? What kind of vision? What kind of identity are you trying to push forth? What does it mean for all the other people who are not from that ethnic majority? Do they feel included? Is that a country that accepts as diverse peoples? What kind of political ramifications are down the line? Of course, to be fair, when you're trying to form a new identity out of you know this colonial political vacuum, it's very difficult not to defer to the ethnic majority and simply take their culture and their language as the standard for the entirety of the country. There have been examples where this was not really the case. And I think of Indonesia. Other examples are Indonesia, names that really came from Western sources, at least in part. Indonesia being a name that fit in the category of anthropological classifications like Polynesia or Melanesia. Mm. Indonesia was another example of those sort of early Western scientific uh, classifications of the peoples and languages of uh, the Pacific. And that became the name for the Malay language in, in the Dutch East Indies. And so Indonesia became the name of the language. And then on independence, the Dutch East Indies became the Republic of Indonesia. That's that's very interesting because do, do you think you find that... I find the Indonesian example particularly mm. interesting because it's not a Indonesian term. Right, right. Why do you think the people who sort of proto-nationalists mm. or early nationalists chose mm. to take this yeah. Western anthropological mm. term and make it their own? Yeah. Well, unlike Malaysia, it doesn't have an ethnic meaning behind it. It doesn't have an ethnic focus, unlike Vietnam or Thailand. Indonesia really is a word that originated from a linguistic and anthropological field of study uh, as the Polynesians and Melanesians. These are the Indonesians, the ones who are affected by Indian culture, 
Mm. And that's where that term came from, the, the uh, Hindu and Buddhist kingdoms of Java, Bali, Sumatra, and other islands of Indonesia. That was the original thinking behind the coining of the term Indonesia as a sort of a historic and cultural uh, background, not as the name of a country so much. And so, of course, when it became the Dutch East Indies, the, or the Netherlands Indies, the uh, new independent regime didn't want to keep that term. Right. And so they sought something that really expressed the indigenous population's culture and history, but uh, also did not give any priority to one particular ethnic group, mm. like the Javanese or the right. other ethnic groups of uh, Indonesia, were all classified under the term Indonesian, which I think expresses in its own way that motto of Indonesia of uh, uh, unity, unity and diversity. And diversity yeah. right. The Indonesian nationalists at that time picked the name, a Western name, because it was the name that they felt was the most fair, that the, it was the broadest name. It was, they didn't pick the name Java, Great Java or anything like that. They didn't pick the name Bali or Aceh because they wanted a Indonesia where that vision, that identity of it was fundamentally one of unity and diversity. So names can say so much about a country, a people, a place. But not all name changes are for the good. And some name changes can actually erase uh, the meaning of something. It can disappear a rich history. Interestingly, other Cambodian names were not translated, but just repeated and pronounced as if they were Vietnamese words. So, Sardaik, which was Iron Market in Cambodian, a town in the Mekong Delta, that became Sardaik in Vietnamese with no particular meaning in Vietnamese, uh, but repeat, transcribing the name from the Khmer script into the Vietnamese script. And there are a number of cases like that. Gamao, the peninsula in the far south of the Mekong Delta, uh, had been Tukmao, which is black water in Cambodian. And so the Vietnamese pronunciation of the second word of that name was just Gamao. And so there was, but that doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything in Vietnamese. Wow. It's just repeating the original Cambodian name, which is a sign of some association with the Cambodian uh, speakers, many of whom still live there. Right. And the Vietnamese settlers who'd moved in are now a majority. They're they're retaining the Cambodian name. And so the entire meaning of the place is lost just like that when there's a rough translation that happens. I am reminded of an example from my own hometown, the hometown of Malacca in Malaysia. Malacca is a town full of history that was the site of the old Malacca Sultanate trade empire that was subsequently taken over by the Portuguese, then the Dutch, then the English, and then Japanese, and back to the British again. It's a place that in everywhere you walk, you're walking on history. And yet, when name changes happen, sometimes it erases that history. One road I know used to be called Tranquiara Road. And Tranquiara in Portuguese means gate. It means gate because 
that was the site of the gates of the fortress. That was the site of the gates where one of the battles over the city's fate occurred when the Malacca Sultanate finally fell to the guns and the cannon of the Portuguese Empire. And today, it's called Tengkara. Jalan Tengkara. And Tengkara doesn't mean anything. It's not a real Malay word. It's simply a changed pronunciation of Tranquera to a Malay-ish way of saying it. And in that, we've lost so much history. With it's, it's not even a case of nationalist pride that we're replacing one history for another, one narrative over another. But in this case, a proud anti-colonial, a proud battle that took place is lost. And I weep for it. Even when the name change doesn't mean anything, clearly it has huge political significance and ramifications for the communities that live there. You know, these name changes aren't something to be taken lightly. We walk around the streets and cities and countries, we travel, we see them every day as we pass by and we drive to work and back and forth and all that, and we ignore them. We don't think about their significance and what they mean. But they have huge importance. Even now, even today, there are still battles over names going on. And one of those most important battles will probably determine the fate of the 21st century. Uh, by the way, we changed the name of South China Sea. The, uh, it's now called West Philippine Sea. If you will ask me one of the best things the, our president did, I think I will cite that. It's a good uh, political move. <laughs> Renaming it. You can Google it. South China Sea is now known in the Philippines as West Philippine Sea. As part of our uh, historical claim over some of the islands in, 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 the, in this area. So uh, this is not simply a legal issue. It's a political issue as well. That just now was Raymond Palatino a Filipino activist and youth leader. He represented the Kabataan Party in the 14th and 15th Filipino Congress. He and I had an extended conversation about the issues of territorial claims of China and various other Southeast Asian countries over the South China Sea. And he, boy, <laughs> he was so excited about this naming convention that the Filipino Parliament had enacted. He genuinely, sincerely believed that this was one of the most important steps that the Filipino government had taken. And I just thought, wow, even today, the battle over names rages on. Whoever gets to name that sea in the middle of all these Southeast Asian countries and China and Taiwan and Japan and all that, who gets to name it will be the one who gets to claim that they own it. These names have power. And so, the next time you walk around the street, you go visit another city, or even, you know, you're in your own city, in your own country, think about names. Think about your own name. Think about your friends' names. Think about all the names that we have for all these different things. Think about 
what kind of power, what kind of vision, what kind of identity they have. And I think that you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised at the power of these names, about the significance of these names, their history, the kind of political games and manipulation and rich stories that are behind them. And I think you'd be surprised as you connect one name to another, as you explore the diversity of Southeast Asia, about how we're all, at the end of the day, same, same, but different. Thank you so much for listening. This is Kajin, your host, speaking. And make sure you follow us on Facebook. Just type up same, same, but different. Like our Facebook page. We're on SoundCloud as well. We're going to be on iTunes as well. Like our page. We have constant updates um, on all things Southeast Asia, even when we don't have podcast episodes. And yeah, you know, thank you so much for listening. You know, all this talk of names has me hankering to sing a particular song. It's called Say My Name, Say My Name. Say my name, say my name. If no one is around you, say baby I love you. If you ain't running game. Say my name, say my name. You acting kinda shame. Okay, bye. I uh, I can't play any more of that song because I would be violating copyright, so bye.